0: Good morning, everyone. Well, uh, today on our journey uh, around the seven churches of Asia, we've arrived at the town of Smyrna, or modern-day Izmir, uh, which is what they call it these days. Um, And with a population today of around 3 million, it's the third largest city in modern Turkey, and the largest of its cities on the Aegean coast, uh, just 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus, from where we heard last week. Now, it was founded around 1000 BC by the Greeks, and uh, Alexander the Great built this impressive agora or marketplace. It's, it's more than a marketplace, you can see it's, it's the town center where all the business and activity and everybody would congregate, and they would listen eagerly to the latest news, including, of course, this new Christian gospel. Historians think that the Apostle Paul may well have founded the church here but it could have been some disciples who had come up from Ephesus. And by the end of the first century, it was a thriving Roman city dedicated to emperor worship and quite hostile to the new Christian teaching and a message. Uh, The Apostle John is reported to have ordained one of its leading elders, a chap by the name of Polycarp. And he was at the time in his early 20s when this book of Revelation would have been written and he would have read this letter. So now we're going to hear what the Lord of the church has to say to the people in this fellowship.
1: This morning I'm reading from the Message Bible and a reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 to Smyrna. Write this to Smyrna. To the angel of the church, the beginning and ending, the first and final one, the once dead and then come alive speaks. I can see your pain and poverty, constant pain, dire poverty, but I also see your wealth. And I hear the lie and the claims of those who pretend to be good Jews, who in fact belong to Satan's crowd. Fear nothing in the things you're about to suffer, but stay on guard. Fear nothing. The devil is about to throw you in jail for a time of testing. Ten days. It won't last forever. Don't quit. Even if it costs you your life. Stay there believing. I have a life crown sized and ready for you. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words. The spirit blowing through the churches. Christ conquerors are safe from devil death.
0: Thank you. I wonder how you would identify a church. What makes it look like a church? What's the single feature that you would spot and say, that building must have been or is a church? Well, surely isn't it the cross? Why would somebody nowadays take a symbol of the most cruel form of torturous death and make that their motto, their symbol, their Icon that would identify them. And that tells us something about what we're about to read of this church in Smyrna. It is the suffering church, the persecuted church. And so this letter represents not just merely the state of affairs at that city in Smyrna in modern day Turkey, but rather it is a reflection of the Lord's message to the suffering church, and the persecuted believers across the world. And it begins, as all the letters do, with a description of the risen Christ from that vision in chapter 1 that we read uh, a couple of weeks ago. And these are the words it says in verse 8, and indeed this is actually the shortest of the letters uh, of the seven churches, that the words come from him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And we read in chapter one of the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, the eternal one. And he made everything. He was there. The world was made through him, it says in the Bible. And everything is under his control. I will build my church, said Jesus. It's not Amesbury's church. It's not Baptist church. It's his church and the gates of hell will not succeed or prevail against it. It is no accident, and to the believers in Smyrna, this was a confident message to know that they had the grasp in his hand of the Eternal One holding their church together. He's the one who came to life, and he has died and risen again and defeated death for a church that is persecuted and facing death itself, It knows that one has gone beyond and will lead them through with no fear. Smyrna's comfort. So we're now going to move on to the Lord's clinical evaluation of his church in Smyrna. Now, when I was in the army, it's a long while ago, but it was the last century, I keep telling people. uh, They did a thing to try and analyze situations and said, conduct a SWOT analysis. Now, the SWOT isn't the teacher's pet. It stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. The concept has changed a bit. But as uh, Barry pointed out, that the words that are addressed to each church are carefully split out to examine each aspect. Their strengths, he commends them. Their weaknesses, he will criticize them. Uh, their opportunities, he will challenge them and the threats they face, he will caution them. And so we have the text in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Christ identifies in this church three major strengths. And yet when you read them, you ask yourself, are you sure you're not mixing up with the weaknesses? The first one is their afflictions, because they were persecuted. They refused to worship this false emperor, thinking he might be God. What was in his mind? And they suffered for it. They were shunned from good company. They were maligned. Their income was probably reduced. They couldn't get jobs, perhaps. Indeed, their possessions would have been stolen, and the the other parties in the city would have quite encouraged people to come in and steal their goods and take them away because they were being pilloried. Hebrews describes, remember those earlier days after you received the light when you endured great conflict, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those treated that way. So don't throw away your confidence. You need to persevere. They suffered that affliction. The second thing they suffered is that they were poor. What's How could that be a strength? And yet wasn't it Jesus who said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Because Jesus says, you are rich. Spiritually, they are rich because they had to depend on God. I remember I had um, run a professional career and then joined the army and followed that through. And when I left, I got to the place where I'd run out of money almost, uh, was various circumstances going on, I had a wife with two children, and I despaired, how could I take things forward? Where could I go? And just at that moment came one of those God incidences where somebody offered me an opportunity for employment. You see, when you're in those circumstances, you're forced to depend on God, and that makes us rich. That is true riches. And James, I'll be referring to a few times, the brother of the Lord wrote these words, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith through these incidents produces perseverance. Do you get it? Stickability. Last week, Barry reminded us of some of the heartbreaks that he's experienced of people who come and then go, and he makes friends and develops relationships, and then they quickly leave the church, and for no good reason from what we can see. You see, some want it too easy. We talk about butterfly churchgoers who flit around and do a little bit in that church, a little bit here, and a little bit there. What happens to a plant when you place it in the soil and you watch it grow a bit, And then suddenly you dig it up and you move it to another patch. And then after a while, you dig it up again. It will not thrive. We need perseverance. We need to face trials and we need to get through them. And they could come internally in the church or they could come externally as these people were experiencing in Smyrna. And then the third thing it says here is in verse 9, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue. Of Satan, slandered by Jews who should have recognized their true Messiah. The Jews thought they worshiped the true God. Jesus pointed out they were a synagogue of Satan. Well, they used the same Bible hymns and Psalms as believers do. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of being wrong, that they hadn't got the right gospel. The challenge of a godly devotion to the word and the behavior of Christians threatened their legalistic lifestyle, showed them up as a sham religion. And as we shall see later, religious persecution is often the worst. The church is persecuted frequently by ideologies that feel threatened at the superior teaching of Jesus and the clean lifestyle of his followers. So we move on to the second section, and I've actually got very little to say here, because in terms of the weaknesses, the criticism, there is none. The suffering believer needs comfort, not a scolding, and the Lord Jesus knows that very well, and applies the same practice to the weak. So should we. Such is the way of love which this church exhibited, But last week's in Ephesus, for some reason, had lost. We move on to the threats this church faced and the caution that was before them. Verse 10, the first half, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. What, Lord? More suffering? How could it get worse? And Jesus says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You see, there's a purpose in persecution, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Oppression, hostility, and ill treatment because of their religious beliefs. Some, not all, would experience prison, including if they were in jail, the removal of their goods and possessions by the authorities, and some might even experience death. But the source of evil is the devil. James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But James traces such wicked behavior of persecution, the human heart, and human sin. Yet God is always sovereign, and he permits such experiences to test and refine his people. For the persecuted church, this is perhaps. The norm. I remember I was at Sandhurst and uh, it was early days, and I'd gone down with uh, some kind of virus or something of that nature, a bug, and uh, vomiting and diarrhea and everything, you know. And of course, uh, the next morning I had to appear in full uniform on sick parade. And the colour sergeant, uh, who was from the Scots Guards, uh, came up and said, So what's wrong with you, sir? And I explained the conditions. And he looked at me and said, Mr. Collins, that's normal operating conditions. It uh, made me think of what life is like as a soldier, of course. And true enough, at times a soldier fights through whatever pain, whatever illness, or whatever he's got to fight through and win the cause. And that is what the persecuted church had come to appreciate and grasp that they were being tempted and tested, but These were normal operating conditions. And it describes the period being 10 days. I described how the number three is the number of God. Number seven is the number of completion and perfection. The number of 10 comes in in its multiples of hundreds and of thousands as a lengthy period. But because it's 10, not a thousand, it's a limited period under God's control. Now, we do know that this lasted at least 60 years. Because in A.D. 156, at the age of 86, Polycarp, who had been there those many years ago with John, was brought before the Roman proconsul, and he was urged to swear allegiance to the Caesar. The proconsul said, "Swear, and I will release you." Revile Christ. Polycarp gave this answer. For 86 years. I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the consul was livid, and he said, look, I have wild beasts. I will, if you will not change your mind, throw you to them. And Polycarp simply said, call them. I think if he'd been American, he would have probably stared and said, bring it on. Polycarp said, "Since you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire." So the consul said, "I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your mind." And so Polycarp stood by the stake. He refused to be tied to it, and he said, "Lord, God Almighty, Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom I have come to know you, thank you for counting me worthy this day and are of drinking the cup of Christ." Along with your martyrs, it's not easy. It's not what anyone would desire. But this didn't just happen in Roman times. Go to the centre of Oxford; you will see the Martyrs' Memorial, where the reformers who founded the, uh, the, the the new Church of England that brought the gospel to the people were tied to a stake and burned alive. I've been to a place called Wigton in uh, the Solway Firth area uh, of southern Scotland. And there is a stake, a stone stake, which is on the site of a wooden stake, which the old Scottish Covenanters who refused to renounce their faith in Christ were tied, and then the tide would come in and drown them. The Nazis martyred Christians such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The Soviet bloc communists tortured Richard Wernbrandt and many, many others. Open Doors numbers the top three countries oppressing Christians, tens of thousands of them, such as North Korea, Afghanistan, and Somalia. And I look up here, and I see the flag of Nigeria. That's number 12 on the list, of which more later. We move on to the last bit, the opportunity. Be faithful, even to the point of death, says Jesus, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Yes, the early church was very familiar with the games and the races and the Olympics, so on. They did it all over the, the, uh, the, the, the empire. And the image is clear, often repeated in Revelation, that there is a crown awaiting the faithful martyr. It's not the Queen's type of gold crown. No, no, no. It's like the Olympic athlete's wreath that, uh, of olives that is placed around the victor's head to know they came first. Indeed, when the 2000 Olympics were held in Athens. They made sure that every Olympic uh, athlete who stood on the podium wore one of these uh, olive leaf crowns. But this crown is different. It's the crown of eternal life itself. I will give you life as your victor's crown. What a glorious prospect! What an opportunity to keep going! The marathon runner may well be tempted to give it up or even. They should have entered a shorter race, perhaps. But Jesus promises the faithful, stick it out, persevere, hang on in there. It's told that Winston Churchill, during the Battle of Britain and a rather difficult time, had agreed to go back to his old school, Harrow, and to give a speech to the prize day and Uh, uh, to uh, get back to speak to his old school. And he agreed to do it, but he hadn't time to write his speech properly. It was too busy and nor had he time to spend with them. So quite simply, he went to the podium uh, at the right moment and he looked at the school and well, it was challenging for, for all of us, or those who lived then, it was challenging for all in Britain at the time of the threat that was coming along. And so, with his dogged determination, he looked at the the, the gathered school and he said, Never give up. Never, never, never give up. Now, that is the spirit of the suffering church. That is the spirit that we too must adopt. That is the spirit that only the Holy Spirit of God can engender and bring us to. Don't think now, how would I speak and how would I behave if I were ever dragged before these situations? God himself, through his Spirit, will give the right words. James said this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The last verse is very simple. It's a challenge to everybody. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Reflect, think on it. But then comes this additional phrase back to that victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's that? Well, we know there's a physical death, but ah, Persecutors one day will be punished with eternal death, hell, the second death. One day the blood of the martyrs will cry out to God and he will bring justice to those who think they've got away with it. They will be punished. The perpetrators will never get away. Only those who repent and who turn to Jesus will find eternal life, that crown. It talks about this in chapter 20 of Revelation that the first resurrection is the believers who come and reign with Christ and the second death has no power over them. But those who turn their backs on Jesus and who fight, destroy his gospel and his people will suffer eternal death forever and ever. So we should strive, persevere for that victor's cry that one day, eternal life, we will know. We know it now if we are believers, but we will share in forever and ever. Amen. There's a hymn that uh, Isaac Watts, probably one of the greatest hymn writers in England, he came from Southampton and wrote these words. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize? and sailed through raging seas. In the name, the precious name of him who died for me, through grace, I'll win the promised crown, whatever my cross may be.